It was going to say blind spots, which is the title of the message this morning. Anybody got any blind spots? Yeah, we all do. We all do. And that's why I knew that there needed to be prayer, extra prayer, and, there, and recognize that maybe there was even extra spiritual war coming into this message because it's so applicable to our lives. We all have blind spots, and I have my own. I've been dealing with some of them this week, trying to put this into practice, trying to process that. So I come before you this morning not from a position of pride or not on a pedestal, not on a high horse, but as a fellow struggler with blind spots, as we're going to see Jacob had his own. We are in Genesis 34 this week. There have been plenty of blind spots throughout history as well. They thought the Titanic was virtually unsinkable, right? And didn't have nearly enough lifeboats for everyone. A Serbian spy brought J. Edgar Hoover proof that there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor four months before it ever happened. Filmmaker Steven Soderbergh said this, We have to have a version of our own story that we keep telling ourselves that allows us to get up in the morning. This version of yourself is what you sell to yourself. I think it necessarily includes not looking at certain things. Everybody's got some blind spot. French architect Paul Virilio said, There are eyes everywhere, no blind spot left. What shall we dream of when everything becomes visible? We'll dream of being blind. It's an interesting thought. But I want you to remember as we will jump more into this theme of blind spots later in the message, when we do that and when you leave this morning, I want you to remember this really short clip that I'm about to show from a commercial about blind spots. I'm your blind spot. And my job is easy. Hide big things. You're good. That's it. Blind spots, right? We have a tough story to deal with this morning. And the structure of my message is going to be a little different than normal. We're going to walk through the whole chapter of 34, and I'll provide a running commentary and, and highlight a couple of points. But then we're going to jump back to some of the underlying issues and, and really focus on uh, the theme of blind spots. But before we do, let me pray for us. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for each and every individual here. God, the best thing that we can do before we hear the word of God being preached is to open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if we come in here and, and our walls are up and we're resistant to anything that you want to do in our lives, then it's, it's just going to be an exercise in vanity. But I pray that we would be open, that our hearts and our minds would be open, and that you would do the work that only you can do God, show us what you want to show us. Teach us what you want to teach us. Change what you want to change. 
I pray that we would just humbly put ourselves before you, fall on our faces, on our knees, and let you be the potter while we are clay in your hands. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We're going to start in verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 34. Leah's daughter, Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. There's also a story in 2 Samuel about a man named Amnon who raped a girl named Tamar, or Tamar, however you want to pronounce it. Like Shechem and Dinah, Amnon was infatuated with Tamar. But unlike Shechem, after raping Tamar, Amnon hated her. In fact, the passage says that he hated her with an even greater hatred than the so-called love that he had for her before. But in this story, in this case, Shechem's infatuation with Dinah grew stronger, and he seeks to make her his wife. And I know from the perspective that we have in our society, that seems a preposterous idea, the idea of them getting married. But in the context, historical context of the times, it actually was probably the right thing to do. And I'm going to explain why. In fact, later on, when God gave the Israelites the laws of Moses, it was actually required. In Genesis 20, or Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29, it says, If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, then he seizes her and has sexual relations with her, and they are discovered, then the man who had sexual relations with her shall give the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife, because he has violated her. He is not allowed to divorce her all his days. So you might be thinking, well, this is just nuts, right? What is going on here? But we need to consider more historical context, which is why I really appreciated what Legionnaire Ministries uh, pointed out about this whole thing. They said, however, this teaching is not a cruel injunction designed to have the wife bitterly remember the violation of her body and soul. In fact, this law protects the woman. During the period in which Moses lived and wrote about, women were extremely vulnerable members of their society. They could not hope to survive if they were unmarried non-virgins, for only those who were virgins could expect to find a husband. A woman who had been raped was therefore considered untouchable in most places, but the Mosaic law protects the victim by prescribing marriage to her attacker. In this way, the Lord guarded the woman from any further economic or social harm. So context is always key. And the story continues in verse 5. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. We don't know why Jacob was silent at first. Was he trying not to act rashly? Did he really want the counsel of his sons and their opinions on the matter and what to do? Or... Did he just not care that much? And I know that seems like a crazy idea, 
But Jacob later ends up showing how passionate his love is for Joseph as well as Benjamin. Now, Benjamin at this point in the story has not been born. He will be soon. But both of those were Rachel's sons. And so Jacob has a history of showing a lot of care and concern and love for Rachel and her sons and a lot of apathy for Leah and her children. And so that could be a part of this. But her brothers weren't quite the same. Verse 6 and 7, Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident. They were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. So Dinah's brothers, on the other hand, seemed to have a much stronger love and concern for her than her father did. And Leah had six sons, so you can imagine how protective six brothers would be to their one sister. And we're going to see that two of their bro her brothers are really protective later. But first, verses 8 through 10 says, Hamor said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here, move about, and acquire property in it. So Hamor is, is making... A fine proposal in having Dinah marry Shechem, but he takes it way further. He proposes two becoming one. This is a marriage proposal in more than one way. He wants Dinah to marry Shechem, and he also wants his people to be married to the people of Israel. And this speaks to, well, and notice what he promises in this, okay? I like the way that Kent Hughes described this proposal. No hard feelings. Let's all get married and be one big happy family. A thing that Israel could never do. Hamor's offer pulsed with economic appeal. Property in Canaan, grazing rights, the freedom to travel and dwell anywhere. In some, Hamor promised what God had promised Israel. Very enticing. A shortcut to the promised land. This is reminiscent of what, Christ, or of what Satan offered Christ. In his greatest temptation, Satan took Jesus up on a cliff before the world and said, Here. This could all be yours. Jesus was supposed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And essentially Satan took him up there and said, yeah, I can do that for you. And did I mention you wouldn't even have to do the whole cross thing? But praise God, Jesus rejected that shortcut. He did not fall for that temptation. And thankfully, and maybe one of the only good things about this story that we're reading today, Jacob and his family wouldn't fall for this shortcut either. Shortcuts, they do cut time, but they lengthen pain. We know this to be true in, in many ways. In worldly affairs, we've seen the results of builders taking shortcuts in construction or repairs. Manufacturers taking shortcuts in the materials they use to make things or how they dispose of chemical waste. We've seen politicians use shortcuts by lying about basically everything about themselves to get elected. George Santos, or is that really your name? We don't know. Or athletes taking shortcuts to win by using steroids or identifying as women. All of this is harmful in the long run. 
But do we recognize the spiritual shortcuts that tempt us? How about this one? Somebody hurt me, so I'm just going to leave the church instead of practicing biblical conflict resolution and forgiveness. And people don't just leave churches that way either, right? Marriages too. Divorce is one of the most popular shortcuts in our culture. Or how about this? I know I should be praying and reading God's Word, but, uh, you know, I'll just listen to one of those preacher guys on the radio on the way to work. Or I, I know I should be at church, but I'll just catch the live stream. Or I'll watch the video later. Or I know I need to confront this person about something, but I don't want to. I'm just going to hope the problem goes away. Shortcuts are tempting because they're easier. Right? It would be easier for Jesus to cave to Satan than to suffer on the cross. It would be easier for Jacob to take Hamor's path to the land instead of God's. But we need to avoid shortcuts in all facets of life. They cost more in the end. And we especially need to avoid them in our own discipleship. Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, said, one aspect of the world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. It's a lie from Satan. Right? The easy and quick route is a temptation from the enemy that we must resist. We'll continue in verses 11 and 12. Then Shechem said to Dinah, Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. Well, as we saw in Deuteronomy, what Shechem is offering here is actually a pretty good offer. What he did is appalling. So in no way would we ever want to soften what he did. It was a horrendous evil. Now, if we're just judging the offer that he's making right now on its own merit, it's a pretty good offer. Does that mean that Shechem is more honorable than we first thought? Well, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. It's not impossible, but he also just might want what he wants and be willing to do what it takes to get what he wants. But the offer itself, it wasn't bad. Let's see what happens with it. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition, if all your males are circumcised as we are. Then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it. For indeed, the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition, if all our men are circumcised as they are. 
Won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let's agree with them, and they will live with us. You might notice how they left out the whole, all the events that actually instigated the proposal in the first place. They were doing some of their own deceiving with their men. It also strikes me how they viewed the outcome of this idea. And this speaks to the general problem of the Israelites intermarrying with the Canaanites, which we've talked about before. God didn't want them intermarrying because the Canaanites would lead Israel away from the Lord. Which in the next chapter we see, we're going to end up seeing that that happened to Jacob and his family anyway, even though this whole thing doesn't play out. Hamor and Shechem, though, they saw this less about them being integrated into Israel and more about Israel being integrated into them. And they would be right about that. We are called to be light in darkness, sheep among wolves, to take the gospel to an unbelieving world. But we must be very careful because we can easily find ourselves being influenced by the world instead of being an influence on it. I'll bring that slide back up in a second for you. But Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we have to be careful even with other believers. How much more so with those who are not connected to Christ? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had been, he was writing to a church that was accepting unrepentant habitual sin in their midst. And he says in verses 6 and 7, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I'm showing us all this as a warning that we need to be careful. We, we need to be in the world. We need to have relationships, friends, and, and things with Unbelievers, because how else are we going to take the gospel to the world? But we need to be careful in how we engage with the world. The partnerships that we create in our relationships, our businesses, in our church. Because we can easily find ourselves being influenced negatively instead of having a positive influence. And we'll, we'll give ground to sin. And we'll rationalize it in our minds, which I'm going to come back to later. And I'll reference that, that leaven that we read about here. But first, let's see what happens. The conclusion of this particular story. Oh, sorry. In case you needed the words, I forgot to put that slide back up there for you. Influenced by and influence on. So, verse 24. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It was all just a ploy. Like father, like son, right? I mean, they're probably thinking like, what's so wrong with us lying and coming up with this ruse, Dad? We've been watching you lie your whole life. <clears throat> and Jacob doesn't even seem to care that much, except for how their actions are going to affect him. Now, in the end, he does condemn these two. Actually, at the end of Genesis, right before Jacob's death, the last words that he spoke to his sons, here's what he said. This is Jacob speaking to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Nonetheless, in this story, at this time, Jacob was a horrible example and leader throughout this whole ordeal, which is a good transition into where I want to go next. You see, I want to look at some of the underlying reasons that brought all this about in the first place. As I briefly commented last week, Jacob didn't follow through on what he was supposed to be doing. At the end of chapter 33, we saw that he spent a little time in a place called Succoth and then settled in Shechem. But most agree that it was the Lord's will for Jacob to go on to Bethel. And to show you that, we first need to go back to chapter 28. Verse 18 through 22 says, Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob's making a commitment to come back to his father's land and specifically to make that stone at Bethel God's house. And then in chapter 31, God appeared to Jacob, which is what led him to leave Laban in the first place. And in verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. Okay, so he's supposed to return, but... Again, well, it doesn't say Bethel specifically, right? Well, look at verse 13. God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. See, that one I think really seals it in my mind. God wanted Jacob to go to Bethel. Now, after this story, in, in chapter 35, which we'll be studying next week, the first verse of the chapter 
God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. But I don't think we should read that as God's first attempt at telling Jacob that he wants him to go to Bethel. Rather, God is restating what was already understood and Jacob failed to obey. It's kind of like what you have to do with kids or employees sometimes. You make your will known to them, but they don't listen. They sometimes, people just hear what they want to hear, right? And obey the parts they want to obey. So you have to go back and say, all right, in case I didn't make myself clear, here's exactly what I want you to do. Of course, they might be like, well, but you didn't say, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. no, no, no. You knew what I wanted you to do. You don't get to do that. And Jacob was really good at hearing what he wanted to hear. In his mind, he was reasoning, well, I did go back. But he stopped in Shechem, which was just 20 miles short of Bethel. And about all of that, a guy named Ian Gugwid, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he mused, why was that? What was Jacob doing settling down at Shechem and raising an altar when he should have been continuing on to Bethel to raise the altar there, where he had first had the dream? Did Jacob think that Shechem was a better site for trade and for his flocks? Perhaps he thought it didn't matter. After all, Bethel was now a mere 20 miles or so away. He could go there whenever it suited him once he got settled. Why, why be so precise in these things? Shechem or Bethel, it's really all the same, isn't it? Indeed, it is not. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed would cost him and his family dearly, as we will see in the following chapter, which is the chapter that we studied today. Almost obedience is never enough. Being in the right ballpark may be sufficient when watching a baseball game, but it's not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. Again, this is a repeated theme that we see over and over in Genesis, and it is so applicable, and we struggle with it so much that it bears repeating in our own lives and fleshing out in new ways. Jacob stopped just short of obedience, and his daughter Dinah paid a heavy price for it. Of course, it didn't end up being just her that paid the price. Dinah wouldn't have been able to go out and see the young women of the area if they had not been in the area to begin with, a place that God hadn't intended them to settle. But Jacob rationalizes in his mind, well, this is good enough, right? Surely God's okay with this. But I hope you'll understand that sin cannot be rationalized. The response to sin is not rationalized. Rationalization is repentance. And this wasn't something only Jacob did either. This is what his sons did. Right? They rationalized all the evil that they did because, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Well, Simeon and Levi, no, he should not do that. But that also doesn't give you the right to go murder a bunch of people. What do you know? They followed in their father's footsteps. John Calvin said, We must beware lest, after we have become severe judges in condemning the faults of others, we hasten inconsiderately into evil. Which is what Simeon and Levi did. 
We are not so different. We get these blind spots in our lives. Rationalizing behavior that we should know is not right. And they really do become blind spots. I can see that as a pastor because I know the principles and the truths that I'll teach over and over and over and over. And sometimes I see them. It's like I see the words going through one ear and out the other. Right? And how do I know? Because there are certain maybe beliefs or actions or, or things in people's lives that I hope to see transform. I hope to see change. And that change doesn't come. And so I know there's a blind spot. Or worse, there could be a conscious resistance to change rather than an ignorant one. But I choose to assume the best, give people the benefit of the doubt. And so I'll just assume it's a blind spot. The Bible actually gives an even better example of a blind spot than this story of Jacob and his sons. If you're familiar with the life of David, he was described as a man after God's own heart. He had some blind spots too. He lusted after a married woman named Bathsheba, and he slept with her. She got pregnant. David tried to, he, he came up with his own ruse to try to cover it up, but that didn't work. And so he ended up having her husband, Uriah, killed in battle with a bunch of other guys by sending them on a suicide mission. And David didn't recognize the magnitude of his sins. He was not appropriately sorry and repentant, convicted. So God sent a man named Nathan to David. And here's what God sent Nathan to say to David. In 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man, and so in, in this story... The rich man is supposed to be David, and the poor man is Uriah, the wife, the husband of Bathsheba. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity Nathan said, you are the man. That's you, David. Well, like how God had to use Nathan, there are times when it's necessary for God to use a pastor to sit down with someone and address a specific issue. The hard times of ministry there's a lot of thought, prayer, and wisdom that goes into shepherding the Lord's people. And it's delicate to speak the truth in love, to find the right timing, to use the right words, and also to re realize when it's necessary to just shut up and let the Holy Spirit work without me. And the approach differs based on the depth of the relationship that I have with someone, based on where they are in their own spiritual maturity, and how serious the issue is. 
Therefore, for instance, I might just hope that some, pe some people's thinking about something will change, right? And so in that case, I'm not dealing with an outward habitual sin issue. It's just maybe there's people in our church who are thinking unbiblically about an issue, and I know that they are, and I want to see that change. And so as we study God's Word, if the passage lends itself to it, I might work in a point or an illustration about that that I might hope will change their thinking without even addressing it specifically. Or I might say things in a conversation if God provides the opportunity. But again, if it's a true blind spot, it doesn't register. Right? Like, the thing about blind spots is dropping hints doesn't work. And if we're rationalizing some belief or behavior that's unbiblical, what we do is we block off any attempt at the Holy Spirit or our brothers and sisters in Christ to bring it to the light to convict us and transform us, we tell ourselves, surely my partial obedience is okay. Or like David, surely this isn't that bad. It's definitely not as bad as a guy, you know, killing somebody's lamb. David, do you, you killed her husband. Ah, oh, but surely it's not that bad. I mean, I could be doing far worse stuff. And look at all the good that I do. I mean, doesn't that balance it out? Look at me compared to other people. And of course, when we compare ourselves to other people, we only want to compare ourselves to the ones that we think are sinning a lot more than us instead of trying to imitate those who might actually challenge us to sin less. Or we say this. We say, surely God doesn't want me to go that far. I mean, come on. That's extreme. Nobody does that anymore. And therein lies part of the problem. We get so ingrained in this culture that we become amazingly desensitized to sin. How far have we come? Think about our, our, our society right now. How far have we come from practicing biblical modesty in America, in the Western world at all? Right? How much ground have churches surrendered in standing up for biblical marriage and sexuality and God's design for our gender. How sexualized has our culture become that even Christians keep moving the needle of what they deem acceptable? And how, how, much, how far have professing believers' views on abortion morphed in this country? We get these blind spots where... We don't see the magnitude of sin. Even, even if it's something that we might recognize is wrong, we, we don't see how wrong it is. We might even consider something as being a sin, but we downplay it so much so that we make it palatable and we let the leaven in. As we looked at in Corinthians, remember a little leaven leavens the whole batch. It's further proof that we can't rationalize our sins. We can't be duped into saying, oh, come on, that's extreme. How can you call that a sin? People should be able to do this or that. Or Now, wait, wait a second. You don't talk about that. That is nobody's business but my own. And the truth of the matter is, if you want to keep them, if you want to keep your blind spots, if you want to hold on, you can just go find a church that will accept it. Listen, if you want to not be convicted, there's a church for that. If you want to have your ears tickled, there's a preacher for that. You guys know it ain't me. If you want to rationalize sin, there's a theological framework out there for you. 
But listen to what Paul told a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. He said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This should lead us away from doing something that the Bible clearly says we shouldn't. But we say our conscience isn't troubled. Which is something I'm going to get to in a second. But I hope that you will see in me and pray for me and support me to try to be a living embodiment of what Paul wrote to Timothy. And sometimes that means I have to do really hard things. There are going to come times when I'm going to have to have really hard conversations, things that I would rather not do, conversations I would rather not have, and that benefit me in absolutely no way at all other than the benefits that come with being faithful to the Word of God and my calling, and the position that he's put me in. I got ahead of myself a second ago, but to wrap this up and to put a bow on it, one of the things that we need to understand is that our conscience does not determine our innocence. That is a key truth to recognizing blind spots. All right, we need to live with a clear conscience, no doubt. We have a problem if we're not living with a clear conscience. Now, someone's conscience could be unclear just because they have the wrong beliefs, and that would need to be dealt with. For instance, I could believe that it's a sin to sneeze. And so every time I sneeze, man, I am just racked with guilt, and I go through this whole cycle, you know. In that case, I just, my thinking just needs to change because it's not a sin to sneeze. But more often than not, Christians believe their sin is justified because they have a clear conscience. But look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. This should lead us away from doing something that the Bible clearly says we shouldn't. But we say, well, my conscience isn't troubled. Well, maybe you prayed about it. And maybe your conscience is clear, but you can't trust your conscience. You can trust God's word. We shouldn't be looking at something that's clear in Scripture and saying, well, you know, God, he's okay with it in my case. God's making an exception for me. I know this is hard-hitting stuff, and that's why I said at the beginning, hey, we're all there. I'm there. I've had to preach this to myself quite a few times this week. And it's very personal because we all have blind spots. And everybody sitting here this morning is probably thinking, man, why is he talking about me? And it's, I, well, I, I am and I'm not. Like, I am in the sense that I'm talking about all of us. Right? And so, that's a good thing because we can relate. And if you're here this morning and you know that you're rationalizing sin, it's not a blind spot. You know it. I'd beg you to just stop. It's not going to be good for you. But if you don't know it, and if it's a blind spot, you don't, right? That's the whole point. You can't see it. 
then what I would direct us to is to pray. To pray like the psalmist prayed. In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 19, 12 and 13, but who can discern their own errors? Right? Who can see their blind spots? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. See, you're not unique in that sense. You have blind spots. That's not unique. You have not come up with new ways to rationalize your sin. You are not alone in becoming desensitized to sin. And let me be clear, that does not give any of us an excuse, but it does lend us a hand. See, we have many helping hands in our midst. That's what God created the church for. We have brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see our blind spots. I can't see mine, but my wife usually does. And vice versa. And you can't see yours. But somebody else can. The question is, will you allow it? And we don't see each other's blind spots so that we can use that against each other. We, it's so that we can help each other. We're like monkeys picking lice off of each other's back. We're like, hey, I can't. You see anything back here? I can't reach it. I can't see it. Will you check that for me? And that's what we have to do with each other. And that's why I wanted to end this, because I knew it was, it was tough, it's convicting, it can be heavy, but I wanted to end in a way that maybe you could be encouraged, because, listen, if, if you're a sinner, okay, great, you are. But if, if God is leading you away from that, if God is convicting you and it's leading you into repentance, then we rejoice. That is the Christian life. And we can leave here with joy in our hearts, not because we have sin but because God is changing us and we are repenting. But now, if you're here this morning and, and, and God is convicting you, but it's not leading you into repentance, it's leading you to put up walls and continue to resist, well, I don't, I'm not expecting or even wanting you to leave here just encouraged and joyful and all happy, happy, happy. But if you'll respond right, then rejoice. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't, you're saying stuff that is like for people that know Jesus, and I don't know Jesus. Okay, we can help you with that. He's always available. It's very simple. It's very simple. Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Do you recognize that your sin has separated you from a perfect God? And that there is no way to be reunited with him on your own. You cannot earn that. You cannot buy that. You cannot work your way there. But he provided a way. You have a debt of sin to the God, the creator of the universe. A debt that you cannot pay. A debt that, ironically enough, only he can pay. That's how big of a debt it is. 
But he also loves you so much that he decided that he would pay it for you. So God the Son left his place in heaven and came down to live a perfect life and to die on a cross willingly to pay that debt that you owed. Only God could do it, so God did it out of his love for you. And now he offers you forgiveness. You don't get forgiveness automatically. He offers it to you. You have to come to him in faith. Not just belief, not just acknowledgement, but faith. And biblical faith means repentance. So you acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge who Jesus is, what he's done for you. You ask for forgiveness and you turn away from the old self and start walking towards the Lord. That walking is not what saves you. The good things, the, the, the changes that God does in you, the good works that you'll see in your life after you choose to follow the Lord, those aren't what save you, but they are the fruit of a genuine relationship with the real God. And if you don't have that this morning, don't waste another day. He wants you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm telling you, if you taste, you'll see that he's good. Don't be like a kid who, who just won't try something that you know, you're like, you will love this if you will just try it. But they're like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. But that's what we're like before we come to know God. But if you finally, if you're like, fine, I'll taste. And you're like, oh, whoa. What have I been missing my whole life? That is what it's like to come to know the real Jesus. And you can do that today. And I pray that you would. God, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for everything that you've done, who you are. We don't deserve your love, but you give it. And you don't give it like begrudgingly. You don't give it like you're not stingy with it. You just pour it out in abundance. It's amazing. It should lead us to you because we, we do have love in our hearts, but goodness gracious, it's so fickle and it's so stingy and it's so selfish. And praise God that you're changing us in those ways. But our love compared to yours, oh, it, it's a world of difference. And I can't wait one day to have this problem of sin completely wiped away and be with you in eternity. Living life the way that it was meant to be lived. But until then, Lord, we are on a journey. We are on a journey and we have a lot of blind spots. 
goodness, Lord, sometimes it feels like our windows are just tinted black and we can't even see out. But thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that even though we might not see a blind spot, somebody else can. You do. And whether it be through another follower of Christ or whether it be through the Holy Spirit finally getting through the walls that we put up, you show it to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us some today. Thankfully, you don't reveal them all at once because we wouldn't be able to bear it. But one at a time. Lord, show us whatever you want to show us today, and I pray that we would be open to it. And I pray that we would not just be open to you doing the work, but also to enlisting the church, enlisting our brothers and sisters in Christ to be there for us, to be surrounding us, and to, to, to be asking them, hey, is there anything, is there a blind spot? Is there something that I'm not seeing that I need to deal with? Is there something that I'm thinking wrong that maybe I need to change? Lord, I am so thankful for the people in my life that have come along and done that for me time and time and time again. So we pray that you would give us those kinds of people and we pray that we would be open to what they have. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would taste and see that you are good. That they would make that choice today to stop running away, but to turn around, open up their arms, and let the embrace of Christ enfold them into the family of God. And I pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.